Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is New York Times columnist Brett Stevens. Well, the GOP gained control of the House of Representatives this week by a very slim margin, and Nancy Pelosi announced that she will step down as Democratic leader. Steny Hoyer also will step aside from leadership. And as the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post put it, A Florida man made an announcement this week, (laughs) and then they buried the story on on page 26, which was kind of amusing. But Trump announced for president in 2024 with all of the usual whining and uh, grievance and so forth that we have come to know all too well. We are fortunate to have with us this week a man who walked all the way out on the limb Uh, climbed out on the limb, I should say, and said, Trump is finished. And that is Brett Stevens. So Brett, why don't you tell us what you made of this, uh, this moment? Well, I think it's different from uh, 2016 or past occasions when Trump has been written off. Because what the GOP rank and file most want, and what they had most expected in the run-up to the midterms was power. And it's impossible, in fact, to analyze the midterm elections and not see the extent to which the influence of Trump in elections in key battleground states wrecked the party's chances. So I think the understanding has finally set among a critical mass of Republicans that Trump is yesterday's man, that he's a cement block around the ankles of the party, and that they have to find a way to move forward without him. And they have a way, which is particularly the person of the Florida governor who won by 19 percentage points and gives Republicans everything they like about Trump without the um, habits of self-sabotage and all the personal baggage. So I am predicting that Trump is not going to be the nominee, and he's not going to be the kind of factor he was in Republican politics these past seven years. Damon Linker, as a number of people have observed, the Republican Party was willing to be faithful to Trump through indecency, uh, unconstitutional behavior, attempts to interfere, like his first impeachment, attempts to to strong-arm allies in an attempt to... uh, to rig uh, an American election against his uh, likely opponent, on and on and on, Charlottesville. But the one thing they're not willing to endure is election losses. What do you think? Do you think Brett is over-optimistic, or what's your sense? Brett's column appeared the evening of Trump's announcement, and I was so like, I don't have a lot of uh, tendency toward uh, superstition, but I immediately started like shaking. And then the next thing I did was I opened Twitter and I saw that Brett's colleague Ross Douthat tweeted in response to this column from Brett, Stevens, you absolute madman, what are you doing? (laughs) And I thought Ross spoke for me. Um, So I, I don't know. I mean, 
I certainly think that it is possible that uh, this could be correct. Brett could be right. This could be the end. Um, however, back in 2016, most people thought that Trump couldn't possibly win the nomination. And then after he did, they thought he couldn't possibly win the presidency. And he did. And then he, of course, did lose in 2020, but he also gained 11 million votes over four years previously. He also came within a mere 45,000 votes in three states from winning the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote by 7 million. And even in these midterms, which the Democrats did so much better than expected, and of course, in terms of kind of the expected context of the first midterm election when... uh the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency, you would have expected Republicans to do much better. All true. However, they didn't really get wiped out. In fact, at the moment, the ongoing count continues, but the Republicans look like they won the total national uh, vote in the House by about 4.1 percentage points over the Democrats. And uh, of course, the Senate remains very close. And so my only cautionary statement is Trump is either in the lead in most polls or, you know, is at the moment a little behind DeSantis. You know, maybe DeSantis will consolidate that. Other people won't come in and divide the anti-Trump vote. And if Trump does manage to make his way onto the ticket, then he absolutely can win. I don't think he will be likely to win, but it is certainly possible um, based on all those statistics I threw out. I would urge a little more uh, humility and uh, awareness that as, as Mona kind of cued it up here, Trump voters aren't really known for thinking in terms of like rational calculations of self-interest. Like, well, we want the Republicans to win and we can't with Trump, so therefore we will vote for DeSantis instead. Their MO tends to be, yeah, Trump, he makes the liberals squeal like a pig, and therefore we want, we want more of that. And that's not really something that can be reasoned with. And so I, I really do worry that, um, his hold over those key voters could be stronger than we poll watchers may suspect or think. Bill Galson, one of the, things that complicates this comfortable narrative that some people are embracing, namely that uh, now there's a, there's a successor to Trump who gives you all of the nastiness and jackassery and take it to the libs tone and feel, but without the baggage, namely Ron DeSantis. There's a problem, which is that DeSantis has not been tested and DeSantis he has been the darling of the conservatives for fighting with Disney and fighting uh, with, you know, the woke people in, in schools and so forth. That's far different from taking on the gorilla of Donald Trump frontally, which is what he would be required to do. I mean, Trump has already begun to lob grenades at DeSantis, and he cannot say, I was a loyal Trump ally. I love Donald Trump. He was one of our greatest presidents, but now it's my turn. I mean, he can't do that. So he has to take on Trump frontally and don't know if he's got what it takes. What do you think? Well, I have a hard enough time understanding the voters in my own political party, <laughs> let alone the other one. I will say two things. 
First of all, Mona, as you know, I was away at a meeting for a couple of days, and I talked to a number of senior Republican operatives at that meeting, and many of them expressed doubts about DeSantis's staying power as a presidential candidate, and in particular, what you mentioned, his ability to stand up to Trump. One of them said to me that he has a glass jaw. Another said that when he's attacked, he tends to retreat into a kind of petulance, that he's really not so good at turning it around. I don't know whether that is true, but the fact that seasoned Republican operatives were willing to bring these matters up suggested to me a kind of a cautionary note. Second, I actually watched the entire 52 minutes of Mr. DeSantis's address to the National Conservatism meeting in Miami. And I have to say, I was unimpressed. He seemed to me to be quite humorless, dark, but not dark in the kind of apocalyptic way that Donald Trump has mastered, which you know has a certain organ music grandeur of its own, but just you know, dark in a kind of a downer way. Uh, he didn't really connect with his audience, and it was an extremely appreciative audience set up for him. He didn't land his applause lines very well. I know the difference between real enthusiasm and polite support, and he was getting polite support in that crowd, but nothing more. I wonder whether he is able to connect with people. I am quite sure that whatever he does, he will be more admired than loved. I don't know whether you have to be loved in order to be a successful presidential candidate or president. Richard Nixon certainly wasn't loved. I do wonder whether he can steal the hearts of the Republican base away from Donald Trump. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, the Nixon analogy. I, I, I have heard that, too, that DeSantis doesn't have a very good personality. Some people think he doesn't have a personality at all. But, you know, that didn't stop Nixon. But then again, Nixon was president and was a candidate in an era when the uh, electorate didn't necessarily expect to be entertained. And today, that's it's a little uh, different. Linda, I want to draw you in on the question of one person who may be a little too happy about Trump running, and that's Joe Biden. You know, long story in the New York Times about Biden has, you know, had been preparing for this for two years. He has a whole team of something like 30 people. Well, he and the and the uh, Democratic committee, but they have like 30 people devoted to just, you know, doing research on what Trump is doing and saying and so forth. And as soon as Trump announced, Biden started fundraising off it. There seems to be this kind of very unhealthy codependency here where Biden has convinced himself that he is the only one who can beat Trump and that therefore, you know, even though he's I think he turns 80 this week, he'll be 82 in two years' time, that uh, that he has to run because Trump is running. Well, I think that's a very bad sign, uh, truthfully. I think, you know, he should not get ahead of his skis on this. And I don't think he's the only one who could beat Trump. And I'm just going to harken back to the discussion we've been having, which is, 
about Trump and whether he's going to get the nomination. And I will say I was very heartened on the night that he announced because something happened that was different from all of the other times that Trump has sort of come back again. And that is that people mostly ignored it, including Fox News. Fox News Channel did not play his entire announcement. They cut away at a certain point. And one of the things that I always thought about the last run was that the media was largely responsible for creating Donald Trump. And that if he had gotten just a fraction of the attention that he got in 2015 and 16, he wouldn't have been the nominee. So I think we're getting uh, too far ahead in assuming it's going to be another uh, Trump-Biden race. I don't think we know who's going to get the Republican nomination. There are a whole lot of people who are very anxious for it. And Trump was really off his game in that speech. He you know, was complaining. He was being a victim. He was sour. He didn't look particularly good and he wasn't particularly energized. So, you know, he's got people nipping in his heels and it is not only Ron DeSantis. There are lots of other people out there, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mike Pence was all over CNN this week, you know, talking about his book. And uh, he clearly wants uh, a chance to run, whether he has any chance, I don't know. But I'm not going to predict what's going to happen in the Democratic Party. And I don't know what's going to happen in the Republican Party, but it is not a sure bet that Donald Trump is going to be nominated. And if Trump isn't nominated, if it turns out that somebody else emerges, it's going to make it less and less likely, I think, that the Democrats are going to feel comfortable about nominating an 82-year-old man who is not particularly articulate at times and who seems to be uh, losing it a little. So, Damon, uh, (laughs) just note that a number of people weren't able to make the announcement. Not even Matt Gates showed up. He claimed that he couldn't because of the weather in D.C., which was fine, by the way. And Ivanka has said that she is not. I mean, he does have Jared. Jared was there, but not Ivanka. She's not going to get involved in politics, she announced. And then there was a, a slew of big Republican donors who said they're not. They're, they're out this time. They're not supporting Trump. So there's that. One point I did want to quickly make uh, that hasn't been touched on yet is something that I think was one of the more remarkable things about his announcement, interminably long announcement speech uh, the other night, and that is he barely even made an allusion to the uh, 2020 election and voter fraud and the stolen election and Biden not really being the legitimate president. He, I think he made a passing reference to China trying to manipulate the election in 2020, which could be true. But other than that, it really, he did not do what he might have, which I think some of us worried he would to kind of turn this coming campaign into a kind of stabbed in the back narrative where he's leading this 
discharge of the disenfranchised masses who voted for him and rightly were trying to get him to stay president and they were denied by all this corruption and and so forth out there. That, I think, is interesting, first of all, because it comes right after the midterms where sorting through all the numbers, the one thing that is, is very clear is that the election-denying candidates did not do well. And so I wonder if if he has now started listening to advisors who are saying, look, you're, this is a loser. You can't do that for the next two years. You'll sink. And if that's true, that's good for the country. And it's also interesting in the kind of game theory version of how primaries could unfold, because that means that Trump is a loser, if he doesn't make the claim that actually I won, they deprived me of it because they cheated, then it opens up the possibility that his rivals can say, why should we put you at the top of a ticket again when you lost in 2020, which could then provoke him to then go back to the election-denying narrative as a kind of defense. So I think that is a, a very interesting and, and sort of unprecedented situation that we're going to be in as this unfolds over the next, God help us, year and three months until the first votes are cast in the primaries in February 2024. Right. Brett, one one more thing to sort of double click on, as the as the saying goes these days, is that this election was a wonderful breath of normality. We had not only did the election deniers lose the there was this uh, thing called the America First Secretary of State Coalition, which is full of people who want running obviously for Secretary of State roles in key states, and uh, only one was elected, and that was in the deep red state of Indiana. And in all of the important swing states, the election deniers were defeated. And one more thing, the Republican candidates who lost did not contest their losses. They conceded, or at least they didn't claim fraud. Am I wrong to begin to sense that the the ship is, is riding a little bit here? Well, Carrie Lake, last I checked, has not conceded, but you're broadly right. Generally speaking, they did concede. The scale of their loss was stunning and heartening. I also think that it's significant that in the same states where the election-denying MAGA Republicans lost by uh, wide margins or at least underperformed badly, like Herschel Walker in Georgia, the normie Republicans, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Chris Sununu, terrific governor of New Hampshire, won by very wide margins. And I think that also was observed by the Republican rank and file, that Republicans win so long as they don't present as crazy. And that, I think, is also having an impact on the calculus of Republican voters. It's why I continue to believe that Donald Trump does not have a plausible future, in part for the reasons that I think Damon very cleverly articulated, which is that his options boil down to either admitting that he's a loser, which goes against his brand, or switching from, from that admission back to crazy mode, which Republicans understand 
is not a, a winning formula. Nate Cohn in the New York Times has a really interesting analysis of the election in which he notes that, well, the headline is Trump's drag on Republicans quantified a five-point penalty. Those five points were the difference between what would have been a Republican tidal wave, a tsunami, and the result that we actually had last Tuesday. Yes. And uh, one more point that I think is worth noting was made by Thomas Edsel, in, also in the New York Times, who points out that these victories in these key states by Democrats were attributable to defections by Republican voters. So it's important to realize that while the people in the Republican Party who dislike the Trumpism are a minority, they are nevertheless a crucial voting bloc and arguably gave Biden his win in 2020 and gave these Democratic candidates in the Senate, for example, their wins uh, in 2022. So it's important to remember that even as we spend a lot of time discussing how much influence Trump has over the majority of Republicans. It's not all. Okay, let's turn now to some lessons that the Democrats should take away from this season. There's a little bit of uh, triumphalism. Um, I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. President Biden was asked after he you know, gave his little remarks what he would do differently, and he said nothing because they, meaning the voters, they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Your response? I hope uh, he reconsiders his <laughs> his answer, which I've talked about repeatedly in terms of wonder. Uh, and I say that for a number of reasons. First of all, there are some gaping vulnerabilities for the Democratic Party and, and for President Biden, that turned out not to be germane this year, but certainly will be two years from now. I would point especially to the issues of crime and immigration as areas of potential vulnerability. And the administration got away and Joe Biden got away without positions on those questions. But I can't believe he will be lucky twice. Point number two, Beneath the surface of the election results were troublesome signs for Democrats, and I've, I've written about this. Among other things, there were significant declines compared to both 2020 and especially 2018, declines in Democratic support among Hispanics, among Asians, and to a lesser but still significant degree among African Americans. If the Democrats were under the illusion that they would be able to count on the kind of block support from those groups to counterbalance losses in rural areas and small towns, uh, I think they'd better think again. Third, these midterm elections documented a shift in the Electoral College, not to the Democrats' advantage. Within living memory, Ohio was a swing state. And uh, Tim Ryan arguably ran the best campaign of a senatorial candidate in either political party, and he still lost to J.D. Vance by 6.6 .6 percentage points. 
Even more recently, as recently as 2018, Florida was the quintessential swing state, and uh, Mr. DeSantis won his election by four-tenths of one percentage point, compared to 19% this year. Florida is no longer a swing state, and if Texas is moving towards purple status, it is at such a glacial pace that I don't expect to see a blue or even purple Texas in my lifetime. Now, granted, the phrase in my lifetime is not nearly as impressive as it used to be. But still, (laughs) this election makes it absolutely clear that Democrats will depend on the upper Midwest and two Sunbelt states for their electoral college majority in 2024. Their room for maneuver, I believe, has been narrowed substantially. You put all of this together, and I hope on sober second thought, Mr. Biden and company will understand that they're going to have to shore up their defenses and develop a somewhat better offense, a somewhat better vision of the future if they hope to mount a strong campaign against the Republican nominee, whoever it is. Linda, you were you were triggered by Bill's remarks. What what did you want to say? Yes, I was, and I'm tr- triggered in a positive way. I'm going to agree <laughs> with Bill on this, but I did want to say a couple of more things, both about the Hispanic vote and about the uh, immigration as an issue. We saw this week a federal judge lifting Title 42's the use of uh, what was President. Uh, Trump's invocation of a public health prohibition against people coming into the United States because they posed a public health threat that has been used to try to manage the flow of asylum seekers uh, at our southern border. And this week we had a federal judge who said, nope, can't do it. Biden can't do it either. And therefore, it's going to be lifted. And what we could see is utter chaos because of that. And it really does point to the fact that Congress has got to do something on immigration. They really do. I mean, it really is unconscionable that two issues have not been resolved. One the security issue. And uh, that does relate to the way in which asylum seekers uh, are coming in huge numbers to the United States. We may see a big flow of people from coming from Haiti soon, as we saw a couple of years ago when you had people under the bridge outside a small town in, in Texas. And, you know, you have people coming from as far away as Venezuela and other places seeking legitimate asylum. These are people who are political uh, refugees and uh, but our laws right now are a mess and uh, we don't have the resources to be able to deal with people at the border so that's got to be fixed but secondly I wanted to comment on the Hispanic vote it didn't turn out quite as uh, good for the Republicans as they hoped some of the Hispanic candidates they nominated didn't in fact win some did some did not but the fact is that this trend away from the Democratic Party, and I've said this over and over again, it's been coming for a long time. And what people have to understand about Hispanics is that they are more like the traditional immigrant group that starts 
life, you know, on some of the bottom rungs, but as they move up that economic ladder, they begin to behave more in their economic interests. And particularly Hispanics tend to be, those who are successful tend to become small business people. They may open a restaurant, a landscaping company, whatever. And therefore they're going to be more amenable to candidates who want to, you know, erase some of the red tape and want to make their taxes lower. And that's more likely to be Republican. So I think that, you know, the Democrats are in for a big shock. And depending on what happens in the nomination processes in 2024, you could see having the uh, Hispanic vote do what it had been doing during the periods in the 1970s, certainly in the 1980s, and under President George W. Bush, and that is more and more Hispanics moving to the Republican Party, if not calling themselves a Republican, at least being willing to vote for Republican candidates. Right. Brett, Mitch McConnell famously lamented candidate quality this year on the Republican side, but uh, there was a problem with candidate quality on the Democratic side as well. In Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson was ranked as probably the most vulnerable Republican incumbent, the Democratic Party in its wisdom settled on Mandela Barnes, who, you know, had very close ties to the uh, defund the police people and uh, wanted to abolish ICE and so on, or at least at some point in his career had. Somebody that our colleague Charlie Sykes was saying, beating the drum for the longest time, saying this is not the kind of candidate you want to put up in a swing state like Wisconsin. And sure enough, Johnson was reelected. There are other examples of uh, progressive candidates like Michelle Vallejo in Texas uh, getting through Democratic primaries and then losing in the general. Or Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Anyone who sort of thought of the way she acted after 2018, the refusal to concede the the election. The point is extremely well taken. And what you have is a situation in which the folks who are voting in primaries are not the people who ought to be choosing candidates Mm -hmm. because they tend toward the fringe, whereas the general electorate is being decided or the elections are really being decided at the center. They're being decided by people who are prepared to split their tickets. This goes back to your earlier point, Mona, which is that we're seeing a kind of, or hopefully seeing a return to health in American politics, just because it's dawning on, even at the fringes or, or, or near fringes of American politics, that they've alighted on a strategic dead end. There is a limit to what you can accomplish through a simple turnout strategy in an election. And what worked in 2016 for Republicans failed to work in 18, in 20, in the special elections in 21, and now in these midterms in 22. And I hope the same wisdom dawns on the Democrats. We'll see. Damon, um, in New York, the Democrats lost something like six seats. I don't know what the final number is going to be. But here's another example of the Democratic Party losing touch with what voters are concerned about. So they reformed the bail law in New York in 2019. New York York is a state completely controlled by Democrats. And uh, arguably, the voters were less than pleased that uh, they eliminated cash bail for most crimes in New York. And voters let their displeasure be felt. And it may have cost the Democrats the House of Representatives. 
And one of the things that that makes this uh, just completed election so fascinating is that it shows that changes that we've seen over the last few election cycles, that it's like they happen and then we immediately kind of draw all these inferences as if the change is going to stop right there. So like after 2016 election, when Trump scaled the blue wall in the upper Midwest with Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, it seemed like, oh my goodness, the Republicans are now winning these states. And if that's true, then, you know, all bets are off. Now Republicans can win in all kinds of new ways because they've activated these new white working class voters and that can counteract the efficiency of the Democratic vote in other places. And here we are just a few cycles later, and not only did Republicans not do so great in 2018 or 2020 or in the special elections last year, but now this year we see Michigan is like as blue as could be at every level of government. Whitmer, who who really triggered the right so much so that there was a kidnapping plot by the by extremists to take her out, but even without bringing in those fringe people, um, a lot of a lot of conservatives in Michigan really hated her guts for the way she was handling COVID, and she wins this sweeping reelection. And as you said. In New York, we think of New York as as blue as it could possibly be. We see all of these. Now, it is a new map in New York, and that can make a huge difference when you redraw the districts. Right. And a lot of people hold um, Cuomo responsible for the incompetent way that they initially drew the maps. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And also Cuomo's in general kind of of disgusted him and the way he comported himself and so forth. Uh, So each state is... You know, all politics is local, and so there are different dynamics at work in each of them. But it's still remarkable that all these seats flipped in New York, of all places, and, you know, possibly being what led the the House to flip. But then you also have California, where a lot of these kind of, you know, it takes California about 18 months to count their votes. So they're still well at it out there. I'm sure they'll get to it by Christmas. But, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're counting their votes, and Republicans are doing very well and a lot of close races out there. So, you know, the map compared to, say, a baseline of 2016 has been scrambled since then. And all kinds of things are up for grabs. And I would just say, and my my personal take on it is that we are an incredibly deeply divided country. And we talk about this on the podcast all the time, but we are also a narrowly divided country that the slightest shift from right to left or the composition of the electorate that shows up on an election day can make a big difference in who controls power. And I think the circumstances are ripe such that if the Democrats would kind of get its act together in the way the bill is often advocating, or if the Republicans not nominated someone who is not named Trump, kept some of Trump's appeal to a different kind of uh, white working class or uh, kind of independent contractor population, but yet didn't repulse the uh, inner ring suburban voters, then I think if either of those things happen, you could imagine a swing uh, of at least a few percentage points pretty strongly in one direction or the other. 
but yet each side has has its own kind of quirks of its coalition that it doesn't want to give up on, which leaves us right on a knife's edge each time. It's almost as if both parties are trying not to be majority parties <laughs> when both have the opportunity. Yeah, well, they, they want to win the way they are now. Well, and we'll have Catherine Gale back, who's leading this movement for final five voting or, you know, ranked choice and so forth, and nonpartisan primaries, which really I'm very gung-ho about because I do think that the partisan primaries are a big part of the problem because the incentives are rigged so that you have to appeal to the most extreme elements in a primary. So we'll, we'll come back to this, of course. I want to transition to Brett's really interesting piece that he published in the New York Times a few weeks ago about climate. It was really interesting, Brett, partly because your debut or maiden column in the New York Times as a columnist was about climate, and you got a lot of pushback. And uh, now you have, you know, written something where you say you've reevaluated. Tell us what prompted you to travel to Greenland. Well, I went to Greenland uh, thanks to an invitation by this marvelous guy, an oceanographer, who, by his own rueful admission, signed one of the various petitions that circulated at the time of my first column to have me fired from my job. And then he admitted, he, he then started reading my column and thought, well, you know, he's not such a bad guy. Maybe I should try to reach out to him instead. He brings groups of influential people up to Greenland uh, for really scientific tours with a lot of emphasis on science to uh, the western coast of Greenland. And lots of people will tell you, well, you can just listen to scientists to give you this data and you believe them. It makes a big difference to actually see it in person. It makes a big difference to see how there is uh, a trim line similar to the bathtub rings in, in places like Lake Mead, showing just how extensive, the uh, massive, the depletion of ice has been in the uh, massive Greenland ice sheet. The trip was itself just part of kind of an extended process on my part to think through issues of climate and what are known as high-impact, low-probability events, which is to say that even if you think that it is unlikely that sea levels will, say, rise by eight feet in the next century, the impact of it is so would be so overwhelming if they did that you have to think about it much more, or I have to think about it much more seriously than I had I'll say that the biggest single factor that changed my thinking about climate was the experience of the pandemic, the experience of a natural occurrence simply overwhelming the ability of a modern technological civilization to handle the problem without huge loss of life and disruption to our economies and, and our way of living. So those factors combine to kind of prompt some fresh thinking. And I always said to myself that I should never be afraid to change my mind in public, even on subjects where I've taken, you know, I've really put a stake in the ground. So that was, that was um, how that long 6,000 word giant piece came to life. 
Well, it's an excellent piece that I highly recommend. And by the way, the photographs are also fantastic. Damon Venture is a brilliant photographer and Times had the good sense to send him up there. Yeah, that really, really uh, adds depth to the piece. So you you said in the beginning, uh, you know, that why you had taken the view you had before, you said that the severity of the threat seemed to me wildly exaggerated, and the proposed cures all smacked of old-fashioned statism mixed with New Age religion. And I would submit that there is still a lot of that out there. And so one of the things you do at the end of the piece is talk about what you think are, are sensible approaches to solutions, which frequently rely on market base thinking rather than top-down government-imposed solutions. So talk for a little bit about that. You might figure out that your, your, the diagnosis is cancer. It doesn't tell you much about what the solutions ought to be. And one of the things that I thought very carefully about, not just up in Greenland, but really over the past few months and in preparing that article, was my conviction that even now the sorts of solutions that are offered for addressing climate change are really inadequate for a variety of reasons, either because the technology is unripe or because they rely too heavily on state intervention or because they are based on some kind of grand plan that tends to sound great in principle and then often fail for either political reasons or technological reasons or actually just scientific reasons in practice. And so to me, the most interesting part of the article was really on the prescriptive end that if we're going to really think seriously about climate, we need to think about a million small solutions rather than one big one. We need to be searchers for solutions rather than planners and designers of solutions. And one example that I thought was extraordinarily interesting was the fact that, you know, in the last 50 odd years, a little more than 50 years, the American population has grown dramatically. The size of the economy has grown dramatically. And yet water consumption has barely budged. And the reason water consumption has barely budged is we have found smarter ways of dealing with water usage, particularly in agriculture, particularly the move away from flood irrigation to drip irrigation, much more economical methods. It's not something you think about as a grand solution to climate mitigation, but it's hugely, hugely important. It's going to be very difficult to transition swiftly away from a fossil fuel-based economy to an energy economy based on other sources, but there are a lot of things that we can do that are really smart that you wouldn't think of as being important parts of a climate solution, like putting triple-paned windows into new home construction to make homes much more energy efficient, because lots of homes are going to stand for 50, 80, even 100 years, and over time, energy-efficient homes are a really smart answer to the problems of energy usage. Most important point, uh, Mona, is that we need to make sure that economic growth and technological innovation are not treated as enemies of climate, but as essential parts of an ultimate solution to the challenges of a changing and warming planet. 
Yeah, you are joined in this, actually, by uh, your colleague Ezra Klein, who has uh, recently, within the last couple of years, done a piece about how the liberal allergy to development and to building and sort of standing in the way of development, that was sort of the, the birth of the environmentalist movement. But if we're going to adequately fight climate change, more development is going to be needed, you know, of better power lines and of uh, nuclear facilities and of other things where, you know, if you're against permitting, you are, you're in the way of progress toward a greener future. Well, there's no question that the environmental movement has in many respects been an enemy of environmental progress. And um, the allergy of the environmental movement to nuclear power, which is nuclear plants essentially do not emit greenhouse gases and are energy dense and remarkably safe and reliable, as one example, it's a striking paradox that we've had for many years an environmental movement which has consistently prescribed the wrong thing. And the whole mindset of limits to growth has not been a friend to a better environment. If we think that we're going to solve climate change by providing poor countries with climate aid, basically old-fashioned foreign aid, and think that's going to make a difference, we're being foolish. We need to be investing in technology. We need to be investing in innovation and we need to be placing a lot of small bets, some of which are going to pay off spectacularly and others of which will not cost us too dearly. Yes, uh, completely agree. I should add, just for fairness sake, that there are many people in the environmental movement now who are pro-nuclear. There's been kind of a bifurcation of opinion, as I understand it. I'm not the world's greatest expert on environmentalists, but that's my understanding. All right. Does anybody else on the panel want to add anything or, or uh, ask Brett, anything? Uh, Bill? Well, I agree with a lot of what Brett says, but I do think we need to be empirical and keep an open mind as to the best balance between market and state in moving towards the kinds of broad-based solutions that Brett is talking about. And there are going to be some areas where concerted state action uh, will be needed, in part because there are familiar market failures in the environmental area as, as well as others. You know, I've, I've recently been reading about you know, holding back the rising tides uh, to save Venice. And it wasn't the market that built these enormous gates that are really proving quite effective in preventing the regular small floods in Venice from simply overwhelming a sinking city. And I suspect very strongly that saving lower Manhattan will require some Venice-like solution that is going to be a matter of public investment. I understand the temptation to react to the top-down prescriptions of, of the conventional environmental movement by shifting in the direction of market-based solutions, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that the market can solve all of our problems here. And, you know, I don't disagree with Bill at all. I don't want to overstate the case. There are obviously places where planning and investment by the state, especially when it comes to large public works, of the sort that the Netherlands put in place in the 1950s and 60s after massive flooding there are, are going to be uh, essential and important. 
One of the things that the government can also do that's important is to change incentive structures. A point that I make in the article is that our flood insurance programs in the United States encourage people to build and develop in areas that we should not be developing. We should be retreating from some of these coastal areas that are going to be vulnerable to rising seas and to other climate events. And so that's going to require also some political will to nudge development into very different areas and to impose the accurate prices in terms of weighing climate risks, which is not something that we're doing today. And if uh, anyone doubts that this is a problem, I would invite them to travel to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which before federally subsidized flood insurance used to consist of little shacks, uh, small houses, things that were easily blown down and rebuilt <laughs> and are now populated by huge mansions that, you know, I will confess I have enjoyed myself. We've rented them for summers, you know, with big groups and they're they're great, but very questionable as to whether that's a smart use of federal resources or and it does create all the wrong incentives. Okay, with that, if nobody else has any comment on the climate matter, let us turn to our final segment this week. Instead of our highlight and low light of the week segment, I'd like to do something a little different because next week is Thanksgiving and we will be taking the week off. And uh, in honor of Thanksgiving, I've asked each of you to cite something that you are grateful for and specifically something about this country, about America that you are grateful for. So Damon Linker, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll start with the kind of the negative side and then come to the positive. So like this, this week I've been uh, supremely irritated uh, by the story of a guy named uh, Sam Bankman Freed, who uh-huh. is uh, the son of prominent law professors and academics, uh, big, big moral theorists. He's, he's gone out and, and he became a kind of crypto guru and turned himself into a multi-billionaire doing it, creating a kind of marketplace for trading cryptocurrencies called FTX. Well, this has gone into a very sharp and serious downward spiral and collapse over the last uh, several weeks, and it looks like a disaster. And he's also given a series of interviews in which he kind of admits that it was all a shell game and that he was a con man, but he does it kind of with a wink, like he thinks it's kind of funny. I mean, he's the only guy in the country who's uh, worse off for lawyers than uh, having Donald Trump as a client because he won't shut up. Um, I found this very irritating, and I even tweeted uh, this week at one point after the latest uh, revelation here about how this is almost enough to turn me into a populist because seeing, <laughs> seeing this guy. But, you know, then I remembered, you know, this is frustrating. Uh, this guy, uh, you know, was very much in democratic elite circles, gave tons and tons of money to, uh, politicians, usually Democrats. And that that does turn my stomach a bit, uh, the kind of intersection of corruption and great wealth and politics. But also, I need to remember that the fact that it was exposed and that the market has sorted itself out now in such a way that the guy who made billions is now going to lose at least a lot of it. It can be ugly if you lost money to this guy. I have great sympathy for you. But I also think that we have seen 
seen here the uh, one of many, many in endless, infinite numbers of dramas about the free society, that there are endless opportunities to make great wealth and create things. But if you are a con man, uh, it's probably pretty likely you're going to get out at some time and end up smashed on the rocks of uh, the free market and the free society with its publicity and journalism and so forth. So um, that's my uh, my uh, small tribute to America and what I'm grateful for. I would much rather live in a place where uh, such dramas uh, unfold and unfold the way that even this one did that irritates me at times. Thank you for that. In some other countries, like the one that just invaded Ukraine, uh, the kleptocrats are in charge. <laughs> exactly. There's no one to <laughs> right. expose what they're doing. Yeah. Right. All right. Linda Chavez. One of the things that I have always been thankful for is having been born in America, having been born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in a part of America that used to be part of Mexico, and thanks in part to members of my own family, is now part of the United States. I'm uh, my, One of my ancestors was the last territorial governor of New Mexico for Mexico, and he ceded one-third of Mexico to the United States when we lost uh, the war in New Mexico. So I've always been thankful of that. But one of the ways to sort of broaden this out and to talk about it in terms of our recent election is that, you know, we focus so much on the border and about people trying to come here. I think what we don't focus enough on is about what that says about America. We are a country that literally millions and millions of people risk their lives to try to come here and live. And, you know, for all of our warts, for some of our mistakes of the past, and even the mistakes that we continue to make, we still are that shining uh, city on a hill that people want to live at. And looking at this last election, all of us were focused on Arizona, what was going to happen in the governor's race there, what was going to happen in the Senate race in Arizona. Well, there was a measure on the ballot in the state of Arizona that passed narrowly, but it passed. And it passed in a state that has not been all that friendly to uh, immigrants in recent years. And that is a provision that will allow undocumented students who have graduated from Arizona high schools to be eligible to pay in-state tuition in state universities. And there are about 3,600 of these students who live in Arizona. And it just says something that even in a state like Arizona, where immigration is such a fraught issue, that the people of that state could be generous and welcoming and say to those who've lived within the state, who've gone to the schools in that state and graduated from high school, we want you to do better and we are going to allow you to pay in-state tuition and graduate from college. And oh, by the way, it's going to benefit Arizona because those students who do go to college will end up getting better jobs and those jobs will mean that they'll pay higher taxes. So we all benefit. Thank you. Bill Galston. I'm grateful for America's tradition of religious liberty, which permits the relationship between religion and public power to be well-ordered, and in particular permits religion to have an impact on politics in the right way. I'm driven 
to these reflections by the death of Mike Gerson last night. I got to know Mike Gerson very well pretty early on when he was an aide to Senator Dan Coates. And I sensed from the very beginning that there was something special about this man. I was talking to a friend of his just a little while ago before I came on this show. And he said, Bill, Mike Gerson was a great Christian. I'm not a Christian, not an expert on Christianity, uh, but he was a great man. Great because of his willingness to bear true witness to what he believed and to integrate that in the right way with his public role in programs like PEPFAR, for example, the AIDS to Africa program, his support for child allowances. And he was a conservative, but one of the most decent and honorable men I've ever met. And one of the bravest. Uh, we were talking earlier about Donald Trump. Mike Gerson sized him up from the beginning, opposed him, had friendships going back many decades, severed in the process. He never wavered. And I'm going to miss him a lot. 100% agree. And uh, he, was a, he was a great soul. Died tragically young at 58 of cancer. Uh, okay, Brett Stevens. I'm tempted in a waggish way to say that I'm grateful to see the travails that both Elon Musk and Twitter are experiencing in their shotgun marriage. It reminds me of Henry Kissinger's great line about the Iran-Iraq war, may both sides lose. The other image that comes to mind is of an anaconda that attempts to swallow a pig or a boar, and both end up dead. And I can't think of something I'd be happier to see than this company that has done so much damage to American public discourse being uh, brought low by its greedy and chronically unscrupulous new owner and bringing him low in turn. That being said, it doesn't seem like a very nice thing to say at Thanksgiving, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something a little nicer, okay? There is no way that Ukrainian forces could have liberated the city of Kherson in southern Ukraine had it not been for the steadfast support of the United States of America. And this is for all of my misgivings about the Biden administration or the conduct of its foreign policy, a triumph for the United States too, a triumph for the forces of freedom, a triumph for American credibility in an era when many seem to have doubts about it. And I see the war in Ukraine very much as one might have seen the Battle of Britain in 1940. It's one of these great battles on which so much else depends, whether it's the freedom of the people of Taiwan or the possibility that the women of Iran and their friends in the other sex might prevail against the misogynistic regime that oppresses them both. 
So I'm grateful that the United States still stands as a beacon of freedom and as an arsenal for democracy around the world, wherever it might be in jeopardy. Thank you for that. And I just have to ask, Brett, aren't you a little bit amazed, as I am, that Joe Biden, you know, whose record on foreign policy positions was never actually all that strong, frankly, has been so terrific and stalwart on this, which is really one of the great issues of our time is how we will respond to this act of aggression by Russia. And uh, and he's been stellar. You know, there's there's a lot at the margins that I could criticize him for. I think we should be providing the Ukrainians with more um, effective and longer range munitions. But those are, those are of small account next to the fact that he got the big picture right, which is that Russia could not be allowed to swallow Ukraine the way in which Hitler swallowed Czechoslovakia or Poland 80 plus years ago. On that call, he got it right in a big way, and I applaud the administration and, and cheer it on and put other differences aside. Right. A hundred percent agree. All right. Well, I would just like to pay tribute to something that we um, we aren't aware of or we're only dimly aware of most of the time, but it was really highlighted by this last election. And that is that there are aspects of national culture that are just ingrained from, from youth and they're very hard to impose from outside. They have to grow up organically. And I am grateful that this is a country that has been holding elections through civil wars, through recessions, depressions, storms, you name it, we hold elections. And every American seems to have within his soul the sense that this is something that cannot be sacrificed, cannot be changed. We elect student council presidents when we're in school. I mean, having elections is just part of our national DNA. And the response of the electorate this time to people who were attempting to interfere with the free exercise of the franchise and to meddle in elections and to deny the outcome of elections shows a certain kind of rootedness and balance in the American people that I am grateful for. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Brett Stevens, and the whole panel, as usual. And I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Jason Brown. Of course, I want to thank all of our listeners. As I mentioned, we will not be here next week, but we will return the following week. By the way, I often ask you to rate and review us. This time I'm going to ask something a little different. Apparently, the best way for people to learn about podcasts isn't through ratings and reviews, although that's great, but it's through word of mouth. And so if you enjoy this podcast and if you think this kind of civil conversation across the political aisle is healthy for our country uh, or helpful to you in any way, please mention it to your friends and family as you're gathering next week and uh, spread the word. We would really appreciate it. So we will return in two weeks. Thank you very much.